Welcome to Book to Wear. Two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. We, this week, have an interview. So, no book this week. Um, we, we'll be talking about a book, just not, well, no. We t- we read this book. This whole thing is is, is a sham. It's kind of like we're going to be kind of almost re-reviewing a book we reviewed, right? I don't even know what you're talking about right now. I was going to say we weren't going to talk about a book, but I get the feeling <laughs> we're going to talk about a book. I was going to say, but we're not reviewing the book, but we're going to talk about a book we reviewed. The, all of, Yes, all of that. Yes. So, um, John Bassoff is our guest this week. Uh, most recently heard here um, from Noir at the Bar, Noir at the Bar, Chicago, um, just a couple weeks ago, um, and then we reviewed his book, um, Corrosion. Was it two years ago? Did we decide? Maybe it was a little longer than that. It was quite. Yeah, it was like a long. It was forever ago. Mm-hmm. It was like a hundred episodes ago. Yeah, and the Incurables far more recently, like in the last month, and then tonight um, to continue on with our John Bassoff spectacular, uh, we're gonna have the man on himself to answer for his crimes in the incurables but first uh here is a little bit about the author john bassoff was born in 1974 in new york city and currently lives with his family and a sickly greyhound in a ghost town somewhere in colorado it's very mysterious his mountain gothic novel corrosion was called startlingly original and unsettling by tom piccarelli a four-time winner of the bram stoker award and won the dark fuse reader's choice award for best novel his surrealistic follow-up, Factory Town, was called A Hallucinatory Descent into an Urban Hell by Bram Stoker award-winning author Ramsey Campbell. His latest novel, The Incurables, will be released in November of 2015. For his day job, Bassoff teaches high school English, where he is known by students and faculty alike as the deranged writer guy. He is a connoisseur of tequila, hot sauces, psychobilly music, and fleabag motels. When we were at that reading... Um, Something came up about psychobilly, and like someone was like, "I love psychobilly," and I did listen to part of this conversation where they were like throwing out psychobilly names. I don't even know what psychobilly is. Thought that was that book by Anthony Neal Smith that we read. Um, yes, that was not. No, that was not psychobilly. What was that called? Uh, the oh, the book. Yeah, <laughs> like the title of the book. Yeah, Yellow Medicine. Yeah, or no, that was Hogdoggin. No. Oh, you know what? Hogdoggin. <laughs> I was thinking of oh god, what's the name? He's got that book about the the amputee. Oh shit! Oh um, yeah, uh, yeah. By the time we're done, psychosomatic. Psychosomatic. And when you said that I was like, yeah, and I was like, no, wait, we didn't review that. <laughs> so, <laughs> any rate, psychobilly um, music. So uh, maybe we'll ask Mister Bassoff a, a little bit about that. Well, I, I don't know. Even if we, I just think that it's going to be something that's horribly out of my league, but. Um... We'll see how it goes. John, thanks so much for taking some time out to join us today on Booked. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. John, why don't we start off by having you tell the listeners about uh, in- the incurables. And they heard us talk about you know about it for an hour. So <laughs> you want to yeah. give them a, a, the quick like elevator pitch for the incurables in your own words? Well, the incurables is a, it's a book that, that takes place in the 1950s during that decade of repression and basically follows uh, three main characters. Um, one of them is, is a guy named Walter Freeman, who uh, is actually based on the real Walter Freeman, who, who pioneered the transorbital lobotomy in the United States. And uh, I found him to be an incredibly fascinating, tragic, um, real-life person. And so I fictionalized him for this book. And so he's one of the main characters. Um, another character is, is a boy named Durango Stanton, whose father is convinced, for, for some reason, that he's the Messiah. 
Um, so we, we've all, a lot of us have had pressure from our parents. This is kind of the ultimate pressure. And, um, and then the, the third main character is, is um, a young prostitute. Her name is Scent. And um, she also has a, an interesting background in that she is convinced that her mother is hiding a fortune from her. So we have these, these kind of three separate characters, these, these three different storylines, and uh, eventually the, the storylines all converge into a, kind of a lot of um, um, delusional insanity. So how is it that you came to use Walter Freeman as a character for your book? We um, actually, Livius, I will give Livius credit for finding out that this was a real life person um, before we did our review. But what, what brought him on your radar? You know, I was, uh, I actually came across something on, on PBS, just like a, a biography on him. And, uh, you know, I had, like most of us, I'd, I'd heard of the lobotomy and, you know, there's a lot of jokes about the lobotomy, but I didn't know much about the actual process and I didn't know anything about Walter Freeman. And, uh, I, I started watching this biography and, you know, the guy was in a lot of ways, kind of like this, this classic American story of, of trying to, you know, really trying to change the world. This guy truly believed in, in this process of, of the lobotomy, um, no matter how tragic the, the results ended up being. And, um, you know, he's a guy that literally went across the country in a car that he named the Lobotomobile, and he performed over 20,000 lobotomies. And, and even after, you know, the lobotomy had, had pretty much been discredited and they said, look, this isn't, this isn't working. It's making people into vegetables. He was, he was completely convinced that he was doing the right thing. And up until the day he died, he would, he would, um, again, travel cross country, visiting all of his old patients and, um, you know, trying, you know, basically rationalizing to himself that, that he had done the right thing and that his patients were improved over where they had been. So when I saw that biography, I'm like, man, I, I got to include this guy somehow. And, um, did a little research to make sure that I, that, you know, I couldn't get sued for anything. And, uh, thankfully you can pretty much write about dead people however you want to. And, uh, so that's, that's kind of how, how that started. Now, clearly, a lot of care goes into any character that that you or or any you know qualified writer um, puts together. How different is the process when you're really working with someone and fictionalizing you know the latter portion in this case uh, of his life? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think in in some ways, um, I had to be a little bit, maybe even a little bit kinder. I, I think knowing that you know, this wasn't just a figment of my imagination that I could do whatever I wanted to, that this was, that people would look this guy up and find out that he was a real person. Um, I think I, I tried, probably made him more sympathetic than, than I might've otherwise made him. Um, I think it's, I think it's easy to, you know, take a guy like this who did something that we look back on now and think of how, how awful it was and, and just to make him into, um, you know, a cartoonish villain. And, but I think after researching about him and reading a lot about him and knowing, you know, his life, I didn't want to do that. So even though he does come across as, as somebody who, um, I don't know, has, has a little bit of a God complex for sure. I don't think I made him into, into a terrible villain in the book. 
No, I think he was really sympathetic. And I think what you had said earlier is he believed in what he was doing. And that typically is even if someone is a villain, if they actually believe they're doing it for the right reasons, they, you know, they, they come across as far more sympathetic than somebody who's doing it for money or fame or whatever. Yeah. And, and my, you know, personally, my, my mom's a psychologist. And so I've always been kind of fascinated with mental health. And, and this is a guy who, you know, in his defense, when he was, you know, becoming a doctor um, in the in the twenties and thirties, and um, going, he was spending a lot of time in these psych- psychiatric wards. The conditions there were so awful because they didn't know what to do with mentally ill people. They had no idea, so they were doing all sorts of of crazy stuff. So, um, you know, in his defense, he really he really was trying to to make their lives better. Now we could definitely argue over, you know, whether he accomplished that. I, I think he probably did not. Um, but yeah, he he's not, um, you know, he's certainly not a, a kind of a, a murderous villain by any stretch. Oh, for sure. I would totally agree with that. So let's talk about, this is um, the second book of yours that we've, that we've talked about on the podcast. And I know that um, in Corrosion there was, um, at some point, kind of a crazy street preacher person, I think, toward the end of the book. And we've got something similar in this book. So in my mind, I was thinking and it's a little too long from corrosion to really remember details but any kind of crossover there or are these just kind of um entirely different worlds that these two books live in i think they're they're completely different worlds but you know i i I certainly have uh themes that that tend to repeat themselves and in a lot of my books um and i think that that kind of uh religious extremism and, and not just I guess not even just religious extremism, but but extremism over a lot of different things um, comes up in almost all of my books. Um, it's funny you talk about um, things being repeated. I must have I must have learned about uh, Walter Freeman a, a little before this book came out because in my in my second book in Factory Town, um, Walter Freeman does make a, a very small appearance there. Very, very small appearance. So I must have just learned about him, become fascinated with him, um, and then he appears completely in the in the third one. But yeah, that, each book that I write is I try to make a completely different world. Um, I give each book a a new setting. Um, I try to not rely on on the same tropes that I've used, but but I can't help that I'm you know I'm definitely fascinated by by certain aspects of of human nature, and and those are the things that I like writing about. All right. This next question, I know Rob has the answer to this, and I asked Rob not to Uh-oh. give me this answer so we could ask you directly uh, about it on the podcast. Um, there's a scene, and it was um, it was part of the reading that you did at Noir at the Bar Chicago, so anybody who's listened to that will know what I'm talking about, where the uh, the blind old lady comes up and Durango is is trying really, really hard to give her her eyesight back. And there's, there's, a, there's a, a statement made there in the book that that could lead someone to believe that maybe partially she had that, that Durango was able to to give her back her sight. Can you you want to clear that up for readers slash listeners? Yeah, so there there is a scene there and near the beginning of the book where uh, Durango's father is is out preaching and um, again he's he's always trying to convince people that his son is the Messiah and no matter how many times he's been out there, his, his son has never been able to perform any miracles. And yet they, they keep going out there and they keep waiting. And in this particular time, he asks um, 
he asks a, a bunch of people to come up. He says, you know, if you're blind or if you're if you're deaf or whatever, uh, come on up, and, and my son will you know will give you sight. And so a woman comes up who's who's blind, um, and Durango, you know, closes his eyes and places his hands on on her eyes. And um, in, in the book, he sees that it appears that she has sight for for just a split second. And then, um, but then she quickly denies it and, and says that, you know, he had not done the miracle correctly. Um, you know, as I wrote, this is one of the, this is the first book that I wrote in third person and the other books I've written have all been in first person and they've all been done by a very unreliable narrator. Um, that's another thing I've always been fascinated with is, is the unreliable narrator. Uh, and, and when I wrote it in third person, that was one of the things that I was, you know, a little sad that I wasn't going to be able to have was that unreliable narrator. But as I started to to write this, I realized that you you can. And I don't even know what the you know what the correct term would be, but you can uh, switch off basically perspectives from each of these characters, even though you're writing in third person, get their viewpoints. And so for me, this was this was Durango's viewpoint at this time that that he believed, at least for a moment, that that she could see. Um, as the author, and doesn't mean that the author's correct, but as the author, I don't think that he actually gave her sight for, for even a second, but I think that he so badly wanted to prove his father right that, that he was, he convinced himself for just that moment that she had. So as, as the author, uh, I would say, no, he did not perform a miracle, but I guess you can, you can interpret it however you want. That's a very, very good answer. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's an awesome moment in the book, and it plants that seed of doubt, and it's so early on that it kind of leaves you questioning, you know, until a good deal into the book, really, w w what is going on? So you're not you're not on solid footing. So if that was the intention, I think that it, it came off perfectly. Yeah, well, thank you. All right. So as your day job, you teach high school. Um, English, which has got to be its own set of challenges, I would imagine. But um, more specifically, um, do you know, have any of your students read any of your work? Have you, have you had any feedback? You know, it's funny. I, yeah, I've had a lot of students uh, read my books. And it's one of those things where, you know, I have to kind of uh, cross that line real gently. I teach in a fairly conservative area. And when I first started writing, my mom, because I used to write under a pen name, and I decided with corrosion to write under my, my own name. And I had just gotten this job teaching high school. And my mom was really mad at me. You know, she said, this is a, this is a big mistake. You need to keep your pen name because you're going to get in a lot of trouble with, you know, parents, especially in kind of a, a conservative area. And um, I've, you know, thankfully, over, over the years, I've had a lot of kids read the book and um, have had, haven't had any complaints, you know, knock on wood so far. My, my big test came actually with a parent recently. Um, she's, she's a very, she's, she's a, you know, great woman. She's got great kids, but she's very, very religious. I know that. And, um, she said, Hey, I really want to read your book. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I was a little nervous about that, but she heard, she gave money to her daughter to buy the book. So I, I got a book, I signed it. I said, please don't read this book and sign my name and, and gave it to her. And, um, she did read the book, and she said it was different than anything she'd ever read before. But she really liked it, and so I think that that was the big tap, the, the big test that I passed as far as um, making my way with with the community that that I teach. And so, um, 
yeah, I, I think it's it's given me a, a little bit of a street cred at my school that I'm uh, that I'm an author, and so far, thankfully, there hasn't been a lot of neg- negativity about it. That's great. Um, I don't know if you listened to our review of Incurables, but I did mention that there was a person who listens to my podcast who who read Corrosion and was a little bit unprepared, I think, from our review um, for the level of violence and weird stuff that happens. So that kind of caused me to be a little bit more conscious uh, in in, in how we talk about books that we're kind of desensitized to some of the things that we talk about. Um, So I can absolutely identify with your... I mean, I, I essentially, when my day job, try and keep it a secret that I talk that I do book reviews because if the people that I you know work with listen to some of the stuff that I talked about, I'd be it would be an uncomfortable situation. So I can definitely identify with that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's yeah, I'm really thankful that um, that I've kind of been accepted in in that community with what I do because because you're right. I mean, this is the the stuff that I write. Um, um, you know, I think after you've, I've, I've been writing for so long and, and writing that kind of stuff for so long that I think as a writer, I've become desensitized to it and, and I can't always tell the way it's going to affect other people. Um, and so it's, and it's definitely like, you know, it's definitely understandable. My, my books aren't going to be for everybody. And it's like my, my wife won't read my books. She's tried a couple of times, but just can't get through them because of because of the level of violence and and a lot of the the imagery and and that kind of stuff um and it's something that you know i've probably become more aware of just being a teacher you know knowing i'm having you know students 16 17 18 year old students read my stuff it's it certainly made me more aware but i haven't um as of yet i haven't changed my style not a lot has to be said for the fact that you know, because you write this kind of thing doesn't mean you perform this kind of thing. So it's not, you know, there's got to be a separation, you know, between what you write and, and who you are. So, you know, I, we don't, uh, I don't know. I mean, in some cases, and Rob and I have had this conversation both on and off the podcast, sometimes we wonder how much of someone's personality actually crosses over into a story because as you get to know the writers, you're like, yeah, I could totally see that guy being into this kind of thing in real life. <laughs> You know, so, I mean, there's got to be that separation where you understand that, you know, just because someone makes a movie about a guy with a a machete that slashes up a bunch of teenage kids doesn't mean that that guy really thinks the teenagers should be slashed by machete, you know, but that that's the, the, the story he wants to tell. Yeah, there is. A, yeah, some people do have a difficult time separating the narrator from from the author. Um, but, you know, my I, most of them, a lot of my characters have have killed a bunch of people and I've only killed a couple people. So yeah, that's, but it's still, you've got plenty of time, man. That's right. So kind of give it up for, um, the, all of this makes me think of as far as the, the desensitization, desensitization, desensitiz. All right. English that's, teacher. Did I, um, desensitization. I think you got desensitization. it. Desensitization. It just says it's way too many syllables. Yeah. Um, it, it just makes me think of, um, Fred Venturini wrote a story called pound of flesh. That's just like, just, uh, he said it was he wrote it because his wife wanted him to write a love story, but it is just like the most brutal like gut punch of a story and um but you can see the love story in it, so <laughs> it's all a matter of perspective. You can write these terrible things, but the story's not about terrible things. terrible things just sometimes happen to happen, I think yes, and as I just want to say one one thing that I was thinking about when we were talking about all this was um the 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 characters in incurables were 
I don't want to say larger than life, but I really like the the style. The overall feeling I get from that book is you've got like um, you've got uh, the boy and the girl, and 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 they're kind of just this like crazy couple of kids, kind of just like marching toward the horrible end. And it was, um, I don't know. I just really thought that it worked very well. I think the characters. Um, really made the book a lot. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, when I when I first started writing it, I was gonna the entire book was going to be just following Walter Freeman, and um, but the more I thought about it, I thought that might might get redundant after a while. Just having the guy going around giving lobotomies for for 250 pages, and I had had these other characters in my mind, and, and just wasn't, and I, I was kind of in love with these characters that I that I thought about. I just didn't, wasn't sure. Um, how I can make it work with, you know, with this, with this Walter Freeman storyline and, um, and, and somehow just was able to, to figure out a way to, to connect it where, you know, the characters are, are different enough. They have, they have their own stories, but there's enough there that, that eventually you can somehow bring them together at the end. Excellent. Um, all right, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about publishing. So you are the founder of New Pulp Press, and um, as it turns out, we, over the course of the last few years, have reviewed a handful of those books, uh, Hell on Church Street, Frank Sinatra in a Blender, which is, I'm sure, mine and Livius both, like one of our probably top five, uh, The Rapist by Les Edgerton, Dust Devils, and uh, Hard Bite. Um, so we've had a, a big taste of New Pulp, um, over the years, do you want to tell us a little bit about what brought you to becoming a, a, a publisher? Yeah, you know this. This was um, God, I, I want to say maybe about 2007, somewhere around there. I had been doing my own writing, and um, I had written a bunch of manuscripts with, you know, a lot of them pretty derivative, not all that good. And then, and then I wrote I wrote a book called The Disassembled Man, which I thought was really good. And, I, and, um, but as is a story with a lot of authors, uh, writing this kind of stuff, I, I sent it away to a bunch of people and they said, yeah, the writing's really good, but it's, you know, the, the subject matter is not going, it's not going to work. It's too grim. The, the protagonist isn't sympathetic enough, that kind of stuff. And, um, after a while I started getting pretty damn frustrated. Um, and so I decided I didn't really want to do just the pure self-publishing thing. And a lot of that was kind of my own vanity of, of feeling like, man, if I'm if I'm self-publishing, then that shows I'm a failure. So I said, you know what? Why don't I start publishing other people's books? And while I'm doing this, I can you know toss my own book in there; nobody will notice. And so um, I knew a couple people who had some experience with it. I mean, I went in with knowing absolutely nothing, um, but researched for a while, uh, talked to some people. And decided, you know, what the hell, and give it a try. And um, I actually knew some some people, like kind of friends of friends, who lived in in the Denver area, who had written some some crime fiction. And um, one of those guys, a guy named Michael Lyon, um, wrote a book called The Butcher's Granddaughter, which I thought was really really good. I'm like, hey, why don't I, you know, I'm trying to get this little publishing company. Why don't I publish your book? And he agreed. And so that's kind of how it started. And then. Um, once I put that book out and kind of got the the name New Pole Press out, I was shocked, amazed by how much how many submissions started coming in very quickly, and I was completely overwhelmed because I really 
you know, I felt like I didn't really know what I was doing and uh, I started getting, you know, submissions from agents and that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, a guy named Lynn Kostoff, who's, who's one of the really great, I, I feel like a great crime fiction writer who's, who's just not known nearly well enough, but his agent submitted a book that had been published years before and asked if I, you know, consider republishing it. And, and I did. And, um, and then it just kind of went from there. Um, again, starting out having really thinking I was just going to publish my book and, you know, maybe three or four others. And then all of a sudden I started getting all these submissions and, I, and, and realizing how many cool books were in this little niche. And then the nice thing about New Pole Press is, you know, when you read some of those early books there, you know, those are the, the, a lot of the books are very similar to the kind of stuff that I write. Um, you know, when you mentioned Jake Hinkson's book, uh, you know, um, Hell on Church Street, which, you know, that's the book that I wish I would have written. Um, it's such such a great book with such a uh, a creepy protagonist, um, and so it became you know it became a labor of love, and um, and then at some point, you know, when my own writing started to take off a little bit, and corrosion got got picked up by by Dark Fuse, um, I, I kind of had to make the decision: do I want to keep going with this, or or do I want to focus on my writing? And and decided that. You know, as much as I enjoyed doing the New Pole Press and as rewarding as it was and as and as great as it was to see other books get get published that probably wouldn't have seen the light of day, that ultimately my my real passion was in, in writing. And so, you know, I decided to to give up the, the New, Pole Pro, New Pole Press ownership and, and focus on my own writing. So we're in a unique position here because we've talked to people who publish who are currently publishing stuff, but you published and aren't publishing anymore. So you probably have a little different perspective. Being a relatively small publisher, um, what 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 do you think the biggest challenge small presses have today? Well, what do you think that is? Uh, there's a lot of challenges, um, but I think the the biggest one probably is just the the number of books that are out there and trying to get you know, each of those books heard. Um, I think, you know, with, with Amazon, it made it, it made it possible. I know, I know Amazon is villainized a lot, but I think Amazon made it possible for a lot of small presses that, that couldn't otherwise have, have published, um, to be able to do so. Um, but man, you know, even from the time when I started publishing to the last couple of years, which isn't that, you know, is talking about the last, you know, six, seven, eight years, um, it just has become harder and harder to to make a name for your book because of how many other small presses are out there. Um, and then for me, I was I was pretty much doing everything. You know, as far as I was I was doing the reading the submissions. Um, I was doing a lot of the copy editing. Um, I wasn't doing the artwork because I can barely draw a stick figure. But I was but I had to find people to to do the cover art and and then the you know. And then doing the the promotion, and you know, at some point, it just it just wears on you. There's there's so much. Plus, you know, I've got a day job, and I've got and I've got kids, and I think a lot of publishers are kind of in that same boat um, of of knowing how much time you have to put into it to to really become successful. And you know, monetarily, you're just it's it's tough to make a go of it. I mean, that's just that's just kind of the reality. I um. I- I was thinking about what you're saying about Amazon and um, I, I kind of think about Amazon as, as kind of 
for books at least in the in the new digital world that we live in is is the great equalizer but perhaps maybe too much of an equalizer because realistically i could right now start up a crime publisher myself from my apartment and just start putting out anything that someone says is crime and kind of overwhelm anything of quality right so really the only um the only chance for for a leg up on Amazon, which again I think is is an amazing avenue for reaching pretty much anybody you need to, is like the rating system, but that's also flawed. So, do you have any thoughts about any of that? Yeah, I mean, um, like I said, I think in my, in my own my own opinion is that for for small publishers and for you know authors you know like myself who who write kind of um, you know more edgy. Tales, I think Amazon's probably done more good than they have have done bad. But um, but you're right. Like with with Amazon, it's um, it is such a, an equalizer that that there can be a there's a whole lot of crap out there as well. And it's hard to convince. It's hard to show people that hey hey my you know my crap isn't as crappy as this guy's crap. Um, you know there's there's a a lot of small presses who are putting out just incredible stuff and incredible books from great authors. And there's a lot of small presses who are, you know, putting out shoddy stuff as well. And that's just, that's kind of the nature of, of the game right now, the publishing game. And that question of, of how you're able to, you know, show the public that yours is, is quality. I don't know if, if anybody really has figured out. Um, I mean, yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned the rating system. Um, and that's pretty damn flawed. Um, we, we know about all the, the stuff of, of trying to buy people's reviews and, and that kind of stuff. And I don't know if anybody totally has Amazon's algorithms figured out because that's kind of what it's come down to now as far as being able to, to sell books. It's what is Amazon's algorithms? You know, is it how much they put into ratings, how much they put into uh, sales and, and all that stuff. And um, it can get a little depressing because of how depersonalized it is, you know, when you, when you start writing, you kind of have that romantic view of, of what it's like to have your book published. And, um, in this day and age, even though it's, you know, it's empowering that so many people are able to do this, it's also, um, not as romantic, I think, as it once was. I think that's pretty dead on. Um, for the record, the answer I was looking for is, um, booked the booked podcast is really how to differentiate between good and bad books. But um, and so I, ha- I hadn't quite finished my answer. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to also say that booked podcast is probably the best way to determine quality from from non quality. Okay, so I, I apologize for interrupting you. Yeah, both of you guys were talking about the rating systems. It's like I constantly feel guilty for not going and doing an Amazon review. But first of all, I'm terrible at writing reviews. And then my second thought is. The, the hours that we spend doing this podcast, because I'll get people to send me a message, be like, hey, dude, you, you guys reviewed my book and you dropped me a review. And I'm thinking, motherfucker, we spent 45 <laughs> minutes talking about it. Right. <laughs> like that's, you know, kind of my my gut response to that. So every now and then I'll go drop one. But um, I, I love the I love the reviews on Amazon when, you know, it's like a two star and say, I started this, but I just couldn't get into it. I like it when they give you the review without even reading the book. Those those are my favorite ones. Yeah, or or as has been mentioned here, the ones that say things like "I don't even know how this got on my Kindle." One star. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, if if the right opportunity comes along, do you envision yourself doing publishing again? 
I don't. I think I'm. I think I'm done with that. Um, I think I'm. Ha- I'm happy doing the writing. Um, you know, some some avenues have opened up for me, that, like in in with having my books translated, which I think is. Um, I think I'm actually do better over overseas, and I will will hear and. Um, as much as like I, I'll look back at that time with a lot of fondness and, and a lot of pride for what I did, it's is I think it's just too painful to to do it again. Um, I have to give it up for that because uh, in the in the four and a half years that we've been reviewers, and uh, for the record, we've always been readers, never writers. We actually did publish a book, but that was kind of more of like a, a fun project than anything. Um, I got to give it up because a lot of times I've seen writers who act as publishers and editors who act as writers and i think that um when someone finds themselves in the position where they're doing everything something suffers right so i have to give it up for someone who just decided to focus on this is the thing that really matters to me and this is what i'm going to do even though i have to tell you that new pulp um put out a shit ton of really awesome books you know so uh even though I'm kind of sad to see you move away from there because the stuff that was coming out, like Frank Sinatra in a blender and stuff like that, I loved. Um, I got to give you credit for just deciding to focus on the thing that was most important. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And it was it really was a tough decision, you know, when I decided to to move on. And and mainly because you, you feel like, you know, you owe a lot to, to these authors who, um, because, you know, as an author myself, I know what it's like to pour everything into a book. And so you have these authors who poured everything into a book and, and you've kind of created this partnership with them and, and gone through this stuff together. And, um, you know, there's a lot of authors who were obviously disappointed and, you know, that, that I was kind of moving, moving on. Um, but I guess at that point there was, you know, a little bit of selfishness involved and said, you know, this is, I, I got to think about what what's what's best for me here, and and at, at that time it was it was to move on. And you mentioned overseas. You meant France, right? That's really what we're talking about. France and their fucking love affair with with like kind of noir American novels. Yeah, I've actually been lucky enough that um, both France and Germany have have nice. picked up um, corrosion. Um, so corrosion will be coming out in Germany later this later next year. But yeah, the French one is the thing I think I'm most excited about. Um, they'll be doing corrosion this year, and then the incurables the following year. And um, it's a it's a publisher called Gallmeister, and for whatever reason, man, they've they really dig a lot of books that I really really dig. So um, you know, Frank Sinatra in a Blender, which you mentioned, got picked up by by Gallmeister. Um, Hell on Church Street, which you mentioned by Jake Hinkson, got picked up by Gallmeister. Um, and then, you know, my, my friend and, and great, great writer, Benjamin Whitmers has, has his books out, out there and, um, and, and Peter Ferris and Todd Robinson. And so it's this whole group of, of people that, you know, that I know very well and are such great writers, um, and, and write stuff that here in the United States is, you know, definitely kind of has that small niche and then over there for whatever reason they, they really dig it and uh, so I get to go you know I get to go out for like a, a 10 day book tour and in in March and and uh, try to remember the French that I learned in junior high 
and you know it's it's one of these opportunities I never ever thought would would happen and uh you know I'm proud and and excited and terrified for it it's really exciting it's good to see um like everybody you mentioned is someone that we've at least talked about on the podcast I think um if not had a review or or done a noir at the bar with or something like that um so it's cool to see everybody get like a crack at a new audience um but with that in mind and knowing that incurables is kind of a, a recent release uh what can we look forward to seeing from you on the horizon what's coming up next that's in english yeah well i've got a, a book called the blade this time um which is is finished uh i sent it off to the to my publisher dark fuse uh, just a couple months ago so that'll be coming out uh next october so uh, the deal with my publisher, Dark Fuse, is, is that I write one book a year for them. Um, and so that one's done. That one's got kind of, um, I don't know if you saw, like the all those old Roman Polanski films, the the apartment, that, that apartment trilogy, like Rosemary's Baby and The Tenant and The Apartment, kind of these claustroph- claustrophobic movies that take place in New York City. Um, I feel like this book kind of has has that feel. It's It's got the usual... Uh, delusions and insanity that's with all of my books it's back to the first person narrator um and uh i have no idea if it's any good you know i give it to the publisher and then i i have no idea anymore but but hopefully it'll be something people dig and then um you know i've i'm always working on something so i've got something else that i'm working on that um would be coming out the year after Excellent, excellent news. Um, where where I'm very much looking forward to it. It's, so I'm looking forward to more stuff from you, and I realize I have a little more catching up to do with your work. Um, maybe when we take another summer off from reading. Um, so where can people find out more about you? Where can they keep up with the stuff you're doing? Is there a website specifically, or just a Facebook author page, or where can people learn more about John Bassoff? Yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a website which has got the original name of JohnBassoff.com. That you can go and, and check out, and then there's a there's a link there to to join my mailing list, which is always appreciated if you can get there. And um, I don't send out a you know I don't send out a, b- a bunch of letters, but anytime something comes, you know, a big thing comes up, I can send out information that way. Um, and then you know, Facebook, Twitter, the usual usual places I'm on there as well. So um, that's the best place to to find out what's going on. Excellent. Well, before we let you go. Is there anything that you'd like to plug? Now, this could be something um, of yours or something that, uh, of a friend of yours or someone that you know that you're really excited about that you want uh, you want our listeners to know more about. Uh, I would, you know, I would again talk about Jake Hinkson, who I think is is just a truly great, great author. Um, you know, Hell on Hell on Church Street's one one of the even though I'm the one who published it, it's one of my favorite books that I've ever read. So if if you know, if you haven't read Jake, and that's he's he's written a bunch of great stuff. Um, he's a guy that I would definitely recommend. Um, I don't want to mention a bunch of other New Pole Press authors because then some of them might get upset that I'm not mentioning them all. Um, but I will say there's um, there's another guy named um, C.J. Howell who is uh, um, his latest book is with was it. Is it 280 steps. I don't know what the publisher is or 380 oh, steps. Oh yeah. 280 steps, yeah. 280 steps. Um and I was fortunate enough to to read it to to blurb it for him and uh it's I think it's a, a really great book and I think that's coming out early next year so I would keep my eye out for for that guy as well, CJ Howell. 
All right, John, thanks for taking time to come on and talk to us uh, here at Booked. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it, guys, and I appreciate all you do. And and um, not to be too narcissistic, but, man, I, I did enjoy listening to your review of The Incurables. Okay, thanks once again to John Bassoff uh, for coming on to the podcast. If you want to know more about him, like he said, go to johnbassoff.com. If you're interested in hearing our uh, reviews of his books, you can go all the way back almost 100 episodes ago to episode 176 where we review his book Corrosion. Uh, then you can dial back just a few episodes to one to, to I'm sorry, excuse me, 283 to, to listen to our review of Incurables. And then um, just a couple episodes ago, 284, you can hear him leaving, reading live from Incurables at Noir at the Bar Chicago, Part 4. I'll tell you, there's also a really good chance that episode like 350 or whatever will probably be another John Bassoff review. That's the one thing I love about interviewing authors is we find out something about a book that we know we're eventually going to read. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes back, we're like, oh, man, I remember being so excited about this. Absolutely. And then so he plugs Jay Kingston. And I'll tell you, it's a good thing he did because, you know, we plug Jay Kingston, right? Yeah, he we do. He plugs Jay Kingston. Yeah. Jay Kingston doesn't plug Jay Kingston. For those, <laughs> I guess this probably never made it to the last <laughs> podcast, right? Rob, I go, Rob, there's a Jay Kingston book on that table I don't even know exists. Oh, right. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, so let me tell you, Jay Kingston, four times a year, uh, allows us very graciously to, to, to MC Noir at the Bar, right? We host a podcast that reviews books. You'd think he'd have been like, guys, guys, I've got this book. And no, no, nothing. No. We have to find out about it because it's sitting on a table somewhere. So at any rate, that's Jay Kingston yeah. for you. So we other people need to plug Jay Kingston. Absolutely. Go read all his stuff. I've got a bookshelf. I mean, like you may, you wouldn't believe how many books the dude's written. He wrote Helen Church Street, which we reviewed. He wrote uh, The Big Ugly, which we reviewed. That No Tomorrow book came out of nowhere. Uh, like just a couple months ago, and we're like, "Hey, dude, well, what's with not giving us a heads up?" Maybe I'm um, all right. What if he doesn't want us to review his books? No, oh, fuck him. Then we're gonna review all of them. Yeah, that's the fucking you know how thing. I am. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bitter and uh, vengeful, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We'll show you. We'll read your books. Yeah. If you don't want us to, and we'll like them. God damn it. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, so any rate, yes. Go get some bass off, um, and go get some Hinkson. And then go get some Matthew McBride. Maybe, maybe if we're lucky, Matthew McBride will come out of hiding um, and show up with another book. That would be nice, too. I know, right? Like some crime story that takes place in, like, Indonesia or something because he's been traveling. He's, like, this world travel guy now or something, right? Yep, and maybe maybe he's kept his head down because he's busy penning the next great novel. So um, lots of good stuff uh, came out of uh, New Pulp, um, and I didn't even realize until Rob put the list together on there about how many of these books we've reviewed and how many we've really liked. So, what's up next for us, Rob? Um, I'm gonna be <laughs> I'm gonna be completely honest with you. I'm completely distracted right now by uh, something that came onto our radar recently. Um, where uh, you remember back, uh, there's been a couple episodes where we talked about those humble bundle. Uh, things where you get a bunch of ebooks and you kind of like decide what price yes. you pay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Nikki Gerlain recently sent uh, uh, put this on our radar. Um, Jeff and Ann Vandermeer have a bundle uh, that they that they that they're doing called the Vandermeer Winter Mixtape, and this has t- taken up all my my concentration right now. It's a it's a it's a bundle of books that you can basically in the same kind of vein choose your price for. And the original books that you get are Crandolin by Anna Tambor 
The Best of Spanish Steampunk, Steampunk, edited by James and Marion Womack. Other Half of the Sky, edited by some people. I'm not going to do all the, the details of the narrator by Michael Sisko. Leanna Crone's Collection, Fiction Part 1, the novels. Um, so those are the main books you get. And then if you pay a certain price for them, pay over a certain price, you actually get five more books. So um, I think for as low as 15 bucks, you can get 10 books. So I am completely not focusing on anything, but like the idea that um, this massive you know bundle of books is available right now. Yeah, that's a pretty cool price and a really great concept. And we have talked about these bundles before. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever actually um, partaken of one. But this one, uh, this one looks pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm getting mine tonight. Um, we will post details in um, this episode's notes, but we'll also probably throw some on, on the upcoming episodes because it is good, uh, or, or I'm sorry, good. It's available only for a limited time, so I think you have the next, uh, basically till the end of December. I think it ends uh, December 31st. There's like 25 days left um, to get these books, this bundle, and then it's gone. So. We'll post up some information so that you can get it. Um, but, yeah, I'm not paying attention. I mean, I, I know that you told me what the next book is. <laughs> I don't remember. So I'm going okay. to ask you, if you don't mind, to uh, actually give that information. I don't mind at all. And who knows? An upcoming episode may feature something from the Humble Bundle. It's we some don't cool know. covers. We don't know. We don't yeah. know. Rob doesn't even know what we're doing next week. Who knows what's coming the yeah, week after exactly. That. I do know what's coming up next week, though. Experimental film. I'm going to go with Gemma Files is the name of the author. It could be Gemma, but I'm going to go with Gemma. G-E-M-M-A. That would be Gemma, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like in um, that stupid Sons of Anarchy, there was a Gemma, right? There there was a Gemma in yeah. that stupid Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> I will say that is uh, as good a job as, uh, as, as uh, Peggy Bundy did in that. She should really go back to just being Peggy Bundy. Yeah. You know, marry a shoe salesman. Fuck all right. these motorcycle guys, right? Right. Well, because then she went on to do that show that got canceled after like three episodes. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, um, it was it was uh, it was um Sons of Anarchy on horses, right? Yes, I think. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't watch any of it. I was totally going to, but then it got canceled, and I was like, ah, I'm not going to go watch something that's been canceled. Exactly. But just in time for the holidays, we're reviewing a ghost story. So there you go. <laughs> here's what ha- like all right so i'm gonna break a little fourth wall for you lately livius has been angry at everything but horror so we were looking at you know what kind of books can we be reading soon i'm like you want a horror book don't you and i think this is how this happened yep so um a cheesing book um we'll be doing that probably on you'll probably be able to hear it on the day it's available so we're going to be right on top of the release on that one and then the episode following that will be the holiday extravaganza spectacular 2015 i'm going to do a little bit of a sneak peek at something that's going to happen in the holiday extravaganza spectacular because I just received a package in the mail from Jesse, Jesse Lawrence, which means we are doing a gift exchange again. We are. And I get the feeling that you and I probably both need to do some gift exchange shopping this week. Am I yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's got to happen real quick. All I'm going to say is if anybody remembers our last holiday extra, whatever you call it, extravaganza thing. Um, if, if Livius and Jesse and I were really, really smart, we would have gotten together and just sent Amanda three butt plugs. There's still time to send her two. <laughs> That's a good point. That's all um, I'm saying. There's still time. But if she listens I, to this, the surprise is ruined. That's true. I don't think she's going to listen. That's a good um, point. And, and I also got a package. Um, did You didn't open your package, did you? No, no. Nope. No, it's sealed, and it's actually what my laptop is sitting on top of right now. 
Very nice. So, um, so next week, experimental film by Gemma Files, um, followed up by a holiday episode, and then who knows what's after that? Maybe a humble bundle thing. Who knows? We'll see. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. <laughs>